Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Air pollution results in the premature death of 7 million people around the world each year. It is a major global killer harming people in nearly every corner of the globe. My guest today, Beth Gardner, is a journalist who traveled the world examining the impact of air pollution. Her new book is called Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution, and in our conversation, she shares stories from her reporting. This includes stories from India, the United Kingdom, Poland, China, the United States, and more. And not only does she detail the harmful effects of air pollution, she also examines policies in individuals who are working towards cleaner air for us all. The book is a very accessible entry point into both the topic of air pollution around the world and the politics surrounding environmentalism. The book and our conversation does a good job of examining and discussing the Clean Air Act in the United States and the global impact that that piece of legislation has had. And one note before we begin, please send me an email if you have suggestions of people I should talk to or topics I should cover. I love hearing from you guys. I know I say this often, but I put out this show for you who are listening to this. So if there is a topic that I am not covering that you wish me to cover, uh, send me an email. I, I do love hearing what's on your mind. All right, now here is my conversation with journalist Beth Gardner, author of the new book, Choked, Life and Breath in the Age of Air Pollution. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Nastiest air I've ever breathed was not is not in the book. Um, I took a trip to Mongolia after I finished reporting the book and while it was in production for a separate article uh, to Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia, and that was really beyond horrendous. Um, it's not the worst polluted, polluted city in the world on a sort of year-round basis because their pollution problem is very seasonal. It's from people who live in yurts in the capital city burning coal all winter long, just really cheap, nasty coal, and it's freezing cold there, so they need tons of it. Um, and that was just, I mean, unbelievable. You could smell the coal smoke wherever you went, indoors, outdoors, it didn't matter. I've also been to Delhi and New Delhi in India, and, and I mean, their pollution is horrendous, but it sort of just happened that I was there at a fairly clean-ish time. Um, in the spring, so, so it in, wasn't in as Bittar, bad. To me. Yeah, is it like indoor air pollution? Is people like sort of heating their yurts with coal that's causing this? 
Yeah, that's where it's coming from. But but it, I mean, indoor, outdoor, outdoors, it's everywhere. Um, it just permeates the air and it hangs over the whole city really for like six months a year. And it's, you know, an absolutely catastrophically bad health crisis. And I, I interviewed the UNICEF representative in Mongolia. And I said to him, you know, I've heard the phrase in other places, sort of public health crisis, pediatric health crisis, sometimes used to describe, a, a, you know, a really severe air pollution situation. And he said, it's actually so much more than a public health crisis. It's like an, an existential crisis for the future of the country. And he was talking about how pollution now, even if they fixed it tomorrow, the pollution that's already happened has impacted people's future health. I mean, there's all kinds of scientific evidence about, you know, um, children's lung capacity when they grow up, if, if they live with pollution at a young age, it, it means they're going to have weaker lungs and smaller lungs. And that has really severe consequences for um, for your health lifelong and, you know, cognitive capacity and all these things. And he was just talking about how it's sort of going to impact on, you know, the human experience basically in that country for decades to come. So it was just so all encompassing. You and know, in like global health circles, yeah. there's this term they call like um, micronutrient deficiency. They call it sort of like yes. the silent hunger, right? Or something like that. The silent um, vitamins. The, yeah. Like the, like the, the invisible sort of killer. Uh, it seems that this is, uh, sort of similar, like a similarly analogous to that, where it's not something that you can like see every day, but it's something that has these kind of long-term impacts um, that because they are sort of, I think, hidden from sort of the immediate impact, it sort of reduces the urgency to take them on. Yeah, I think that's really true. And in Mongolia, it was a very extreme you know, situation, it's extreme pollution. So the impact is extreme. And you can kind of see it because, you know, the hospitals are overflowing with kids who get pneumonia multiple times a year. But if you go further afield to other parts of Asia, and, you know, indeed to Western developed countries where, you know, it's not nearly as bad as Mongolia or India, if you're if you're talking about, you know, London, where I live, or the US where I'm from, but, you know, nonetheless, it is severe and it's killing people. And you hear a lot when you when you sort of get into these air pollution circles and, and start talking to the experts, this notion of invisibility. And I think that's actually really important because sometimes people mean by that that, you know, you can't see the pollution. And that is oftentimes true. And it's a contrast to, you know, a few decades ago, even in L.A. or New York, when you really could see it. So it's invisible now. But I think more than the pollution itself being invisible, what's invisible sort of to the naked eye to us as kind of scientific lay people is the connection between cause and effect. So, you know, like I was saying, the the science is very strong. And even at fairly low levels and at the levels that we have in, in, in the U.S. and Western Europe developed countries – there's very strong, um, there are very strong, very strong evidence connecting increased rates of air pollution to, you know, increased rates of heart attacks, strokes, cancer, dementia, Parkinson's disease, premature birth. It just goes on and on, you know, right up to the sort of biggest health problem of them all, premature death. More people die when the air pollution is higher. But the thing that's tricky, and that, like I said, is very sort of rigorously grounded in terms of the science, that statement. But nonetheless, in any individual case, it's very hard to say that this is why 
someone died. You know, if I have a well, heart and you've written well, 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 you've written uh, about a, a mother who's trying to reverse that, the mother of Ella Kissy Deborah yeah. in, in in London, where you live. Can you sort of tell that story? Tell her story. Sure. So Ella Kissy Deborah was a little girl um, who died in 2013. She was nine years old. Uh, she was pretty healthy up until she was six. And then she developed a very, very severe case of asthma. And she lived um, right off of a road called the South Circular, which is just a really, really major thoroughfare in London. Um, the UK and all of Europe has a really significant air quality problem because there's a lot of diesel used here. And diesel is much dirtier and more toxic than gas, which is more commonly used in the States. Um, but Ella Kissy, Deborah's mom, Rosamond, who is really an extraordinary woman, um, you know, who was at the time a, a secondary school teacher, you know, a very powerful advocate for her daughter within the medical system and all of that. She didn't know anything about air pollution. It really, at that time, was not talked about in London. And even the doctors, she was seeing some of the top asthma specialists and res respiratory specialists in the country never mentioned air pollution. They talked about pollen and other things like that, which are, you know, legitimate, but she lived off a really major road. Ella died. Um after three years of, of horrendous asthma, she was hospitalized about 30 times over the course of that those three years. And about a year, more than a year, year and a half afterwards, Rosman started to hear and started to understand a little bit about air pollution. And she, she worked with a scientist who did a study and found that Ella's hospitalizations, I think out of 30-some, 29 of them correlated with pollution spikes in her neighborhood. And there was some sort of pathological evidence, too, from the doctors. And anyway, what Rosamond is doing now, and, and she just uh, in the last few weeks has had a, a big court victory um, in the Britain's high court. She's trying to get the inquest into Ella's death reopened. And the reason she wants to do that is that she wants to have air pollution written onto the death certificate as a contributing factor in Ella's death. Right now, it just says like a severe respiratory failure or something like that. And she wants the killer to be named as air yeah, pollution. Exactly. And I think that's very powerful, exactly for the reason I was talking about before. Like if I have a heart attack or you have a stroke tomorrow, you know, even if we live in a really polluted place, you can never really say that's why we got sick. That's why someone died. Um, but in very rare, you know, sort of severe cases, and it looks like Ella Kissy Deborah's case is one of them, it can actually been, be pinned down. And I think Rosamond, her mom, understands the, the power of that. And, and I think it would be incredibly powerful. You know, we all know this idea, I guess, that the old saw that one, one you know, human story, one human face is more powerful than, you know, a million statistics. There are some really scary statistics in, in the UK. Air pollution kills 40,000 people every year in the U.S., 100,000, globally 7 million. But, you know, those numbers are numbers. And But one child, a real human person who died from something in many ways is so much more powerful. So I think Rosamond believes that if this, you know, killer can be named, as you say, that that's sort of the next logical question is like, well, you know, what are we going to do about this? Because there's other kids too, right? There's, she's just one. So, so your book also takes readers to Poland, uh, yeah. which has a similarly, um, you know, pretty horrendous uh, air pollution problem, but it's sort of causes are, are a little different. Can you sort of 
paint the, the, the picture for us about what the air quality situation is in uh, parts of Poland that you visited and how people are coping? Yeah, sure. So Poland, my Poland chapter is about coal. And just before I exactly get into answering your question, I think it's important to say that, you know, in each chapter of the book, I've gone to different places. But, you know, coal is not just about Poland. It's just one place to see a larger story. Uh, my London chapter is about diesel. That's also, a, you know, continent wide problem. So Poland is one of the most coal dependent countries on earth. They get, you know, almost all of their, their electricity from coal. And that is really bad in terms of air quality and obviously the climate impact as well. But what is sort of even more egregious in terms of the air quality is that a lot of people there are burning coal for heat in their homes. So, you know, if you're burning coal in a big power plant, at least it's sort of done, you know, under some sort of a regulatory regime. And there's some kind of probably, you know, filtering equipment and the smokestacks and stuff. But at home, it's these really low tech stoves. People tend to get this pretty cheap poor quality coal, and there's no filtration or mitigation or anything like that. So it's just absolutely choking. Um, you know, I went to the the coal heartland, sort of old industrial heartland of Poland. It's called Silesia. And I, I walked around this little town and I actually went there because there's a lot of power plants there and I wanted to see the power plants. But I ended up having to write about the chimneys, the, the homes, because it's just so... Um, you know, choking really, um, and asphyxiating. I guess what's like so interesting to me about that is, you know, I've done some reporting on like indoor air pollution, particularly from like the vantage point of like the developing world where, you know, heating, you know, these like old burning, you know, fuel burning stoves that emit harmful toxins inside, you know, huts in rural, you know, parts of like Tanzania or, you know, or wherever it's not, um, that sort of indoor air pollution, which is a major killer uh, around the world, is not something I typically associated with like industrial Europe, which is so interesting to, yeah. to, to, to hear that from you. No, you wouldn't. And in fact, actually, the scientists have have kind of stopped using those terms, indoor pollution and outdoor pollution, because what they've realized is that they're totally intertwined. Oh, so, really? you know, so, yeah, but now I they call- I, I interviewed someone from like the World Health Organization like a year ago about ambient like, versus indoor air pollution. Now they say ambient and household. Oh, ambient but, and household. Okay, yeah. I think yeah that, those not to fall back on indoor and outdoor because okay. that's a, it's sort of easier. Yeah. Um, but they're totally intertwined. Um, and like in India, for example, the, this idea of indoor household air pollution, it's often around cooking there rather than heating, but people are burning wood and dried cow dung and things like that because they don't have gas or electricity for heat. But it's a, So it's really bad in your house and, and the health effects of that are terrible, but it also is actually now thought to account for 25% of India's overall outdoor ambient air quality problem. Yeah, so the, they're um, connected. The, the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves, which is housed at the UN Foundation, which you know, also supports uh, my work at UN Dispatch, uh, is kind of my entry point into these kind of conversations usually. Yeah, but actually what what I was surprised to fa- to find because I I also have a chapter about this, you know, the the dirty cook stoves in in India and Africa. Um but I was actually surprised to realize that wood burning is a is a big um pollution contributor in the West too, in developed countries in the US and the UK and Europe. And, you know, uh, sort of log burning stoves, wood, home wood burners have become really trendy and are being sold and, and people are buying them as supposedly a kind of climate, you know, 
eco thing that wood is is a greener form of energy than natural gas or, or that sort of thing. Um, and it's actually really a, a catastrophic mistake because the climate benefit sort of doesn't really add up um, once you're out in the real world. On, on paper, it maybe some sort of works to say that wood is climate neutral. Um, but the health effects of it are terrible um, because wood, you know, it feels like, and I actually really felt this too, it took me a long time to really understand the severity of it because I I think like most people sort of feel like, oh, wood fire, you know, it's cozy and sort of natural in some way. It's not, you know, toxic like coal. But actually, wood is full of all kinds of toxins and these tiny particulate, um, tiny particles known as PM2.5, which burrow all the way into your bloodstream and your, your organs and are linked to the worst health effects. And I've got somebody in my, on my block in London who I'm sure got one of these wood burners a couple of years ago for Christmas because I started smelling it at the beginning of January every night on my street and it's sort of a nice smell but now i know it's like you know giving me a greater risk of a heart attack so i can't enjoy it uh, so, so it's the developing country that's you know got this problem with with wood so so my next question for you is actually preempted by a question i got over twitter you know sometimes when i do these interviews yeah. i'll post on twitter that i'm about to interview something what do you want to learn and tedx london uh, oh. Your fans out there in London asks, what's the most surprising approach to dealing with pollution that you came across while doing the research? And that was actually going to be my next question anyway. So thank you, TEDx London. Um, the most surprising approach. That's really interesting. Um, I think what what I saw is that, I mean, there there is, you know, sort of like some whiz-bang technology, electric cars and, and all of that. And I think those things are great. But I think actually the answers to air pollution are a little bit more boring. Boring in the sense of being, I guess, kind of technical, but non-boring in the sense of, I think, being at the crux of some of our biggest political debates. And I'm talking about regulation um, because, you know, people talk about sort of behavioral change and, and, you know, personal choice and things like that when it comes to climate and also air pollution. Do you drive or do you walk, whatever. Um, but what I really saw was, you know, and, and this is like from going from China to L.A. and, and Washington and, and London, is that, you know, as individuals, sure, we can make make decisions that help, but it's really only our governments that have the power to restrain, you know, polluting companies, um, whether it's it's VW and, and cars or it's big coal plants or whatever, Um and I think that's why air pollution and climate and environment is really at the center of, you know, this sort of left versus right, you know, kind of knockdown, drag out war that we've been going through in the U.S. The partisan fighting for decades now. So, um, because so it comes down to money and regulation well, and government power and and well, corporate. Power. Let me ask you then: like, where are some interesting government innovations and interesting government regulations happening today? Well, actually, the U.S. is a, is a pretty significant success story, and L.A. in particular um, was a place that I went to kind of try to tell that story. Um, and you know, it's it's um, a, a sort of slow, steady progress over many years of science based regulation that kind of across the board systematically cracks down on whether it's cars and trucks or ships in the in the harbor and that sort of thing um in la which you know ha is, is has this paradox i think of being at the same time a 
great, one of the world's great environmental success stories, people say, and I think rightly so, the cleanup of its smog since the sort of 70s, 80s, 90s, when it was awful, uh, but at the same time still has America's worst air. Um, but they have made so much progress, and it's been done by, you know, this kind of systematic clampdown. Um, and now there's things, um, one of the pollution sources I was surprised to find in L.A., is shipping and they have two big ports there, the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach. And the ships run on this really dirty fuel and all these trucks come in to, to get, you know, it's kind of the backbone of our consumer economy. This is goods coming in from China and being trucked out to, to targets and Walmarts all over the country. Um, but there's starting to be some innovations like plug-in power at the dockside so that ships don't have to run their engines while they're sitting there getting loaded and unloaded. Um, there's this this guy who started a company of a sort of tugboat type of ship that can pull up alongside a big freighter and snap a pollution cap on top and and filter out some of the more horrible exhaust. So, you know, there is some tech like that and those things make a difference. But I think fundamentally it, it comes down to regulation and, and the kind of science-based exercise of government power over and over around the world is the thing that makes a difference. And, and there's no real greater example of that, like around the world, right, than the Clean Air Act of the United States. Yeah. Can, yeah, can you talk a little bit about just like the impact of the Clean Air Act um, on sort of how, you know, we live in the United States today, but also its impact like around the world? Yeah, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Um, and, you know, I, I think of it now that I've sort of really come to understand its its impact as one of the most consequential laws in modern American history. But I think it's a little bit sort of un, undersung and under-celebrated, given, given what it's achieved. Um, there, there are, you know, official sort of government commission studies that literally show that millions of American lives have been saved. I think back in the 80s and the 90s, it was like 200,000 lives a year saved, deaths averted um, by the cleanup that had been delivered by the Clean Air Act, trillions of dollars saved. And I think to me, the most extraordinary thing is that the the benefits sort of in dollar terms have been literally dozens of times the costs, 30, 40 times the cost. And, you know, when we're debating about regulation, it always usually comes down to, oh, it's going to be too expensive. We can't do it. But with clean air, actually, the health benefits are so immense that they they outweigh the costs by a lot. And the Clean Air Act passed at the very end of 1970 and signed by Richard Nixon under some political pressure um, was really a very innovatively designed piece of legislation. And I, I talked to one of the guys who was a staff attorney on, on the subcommittee that drafted the bill, and he really helped to write it. It was a bipartisan law. And it, it had a lot of very sort of well-designed components to it. But I think the most important piece was the the, the central one, which was had to do with the, the way that pollution standards nationally would be set. So the EPA is required to sort of gather the science and set what the allowable level of pollution is in American air for a whole bunch of different pollutants. And what the Clean Air Act of 1970 said was that when you make that determination, when the EPA sets those standards, there's only one thing that they can consider. And that thing was public health. What level of air pollution is acceptable for Americans to breathe? N not what can we achieve, not how much is it going to cost. You can take cost into account later when you're sort of 
figuring out how you're going to do it. But this notion that public health is more important than corporate profit and, and then, you know, the almighty dollar was, I think, really revolutionary for its time. And it's why the Clean Air Act has been so powerful and why it's been, you know, attracted some pretty powerful enemies as well. So how much does what China does um, sort of affect global you know, statistics around air pollution, like what's going on in, in China today in terms of how they're seeking to, you know, regulate air quality? Well, it really matters a lot, actually, both from the sense of sort of immediate human health and from the perspective of the global climate crisis. Um, so China, you know, obviously their air is terrible. Um, they're, they've sort of been the, the poster child in a way of, of air pollution, I think. But there's really a, a more positive story that's happening there now, too. And it's, a, you know, progress, in fact, in, in informed and influenced by America's and particularly L.A.'s progress. They've, they've sent people over to study, you know, how L.A. achieved its cleanup. So China, over the last few years, is experiencing double-digit declines in um, pollution levels, particulate matter, particularly in big cities like Beijing, that brings, you know, immediate health benefits. And the way that they're doing it is by rolling out the world's biggest ever investment in wind and solar power. They are throwing now an absolute ton of money at electric vehicles, and they're beginning to um, cap and they say decrease their coal consumption. So, you know, like I said, that brings immediate benefits for people's health in China, but it really has huge repercussions globally in terms of climate as well. Um, not just because China is the world's biggest coal consumer. So if they start to bring that down, that will, you know, have a, a beneficial impact on global carbon emissions, but also because China is just so huge that they really have these, you know, economies of scale that move global markets. We saw over the last decade or so that when China started getting into um, manufacture of solar panels, that that helped to bring the cost of a solar panel down by 90% over the cost of just a few years. And it's made solar now cost competitive, even with cheap, dirty coal almost around the world. And they're now doing the same thing, I think, in, you know, earlier sort of in the curve, but they're, they're aiming to do the same thing with electric vehicles, not just cars, but buses too. And they're doing it because they recognize that they need cleaner cars if they're going to have clean air themselves. But because the Chinese market is so huge and because they're throwing so much money at it, you know, I think very soon we're going to start to see that this is going to bring the cost of electric vehicles down for the rest of us. And I think it's also going to move the technology forward faster, you know, better charging and, and larger range and things like that. So it, it really has big repercussions. And I also think that other countries, you know, developing countries are maybe starting to look to China because China has been on this, you know, path of economic development, but environmental destruction. And they're really realizing now that it's not sustainable anymore. You know, people are choking on the pollution. Their waterways are filthy. Their soil is contaminated. And they're starting to ask, you know, to really reckon with that, I think, and to ask whether there is a different path. And I think, you know, we may see other countries that are a little bit earlier on in their development curve watching China and starting to see what they do. And is there a way that we can develop economically without, you know, having that devastating 
impact on our environment and our people's health too. So I think it's influential in that way as well. Uh, well, Beth, thank you so much for your time. Your your book is great. It really does paint like a, a vivid picture of both the scale of the problem and also, you know, the solutions that are out there to take on this crisis. Um, very accessible, highly recommended. I'll post a link to it on the website. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been really fun. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Beth Gardner. That was great. Uh, very glad to have spoken with her. And and yes, as I mentioned, I, I really do recommend this book. It is very accessible. It's an easy read. And I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. See you next time. Bye.